This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Dave Hendon. Uh, Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. You're about to hear an interview I've done with Sam Curry, who's an actor who's going to be appearing in a play I've written. But uh, before we get to that, listening back to the interview I did with Sam, it occurred to me that I didn't really explain that much about what the play's about. And also, for people who are listening, who've never heard the podcast before, really who I am and what this is all about. So let me just explain for you. My name is Dave Hendon. I commentate on snooker principally for Eurosport the pan-European satellite channel, and I'm also a journalist. I am the assistant editor of Snooker Scene. This is the Snooker Scene podcast. It's a weekly podcast about professional snooker, except that this edition that you're about to listen to is not about snooker at all because I've decided to uh, to use it as a vehicle to promote my play. It's a little indulgence, but hopefully you'll forgive me for it. Uh, so I should tell you what the play is. It's called The D-List. It's a comedy. It features a character called Jamie who goes on the reality television show, does really well on it, and is persuaded by an agent that he should try and be a celebrity and go through the whole celebrity thing. He becomes more and more desperate to keep the flame alive, to keep himself in the headlines, and it affects his relationships principally with his girlfriend and also uh, with his best friend. And he kind of, at the end, has to make a decision about what he really wants out of life. Does he want this world, or does he perhaps want the world that he had before. It's a comedy. It sounds sanctimonious, I know, when you sort of explain it like that. It is a comedy. We've got high hopes for it. It's going to be on at the Edinburgh Festival, as you'll hear in this podcast. So that's just setting it up, really. And as you'll hear very shortly when we get into this podcast, Sam and myself, because we met in London's bustling theatre land, and we realised when we got there that uh, there was basically nowhere to record it. Uh, it was raining outside, we couldn't sit outside, so we ended up in a pub. So there's a bit of hubbub, there's a bit of background noise, but hopefully you can hear us, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. So let's now go to Covent Garden and listen to the podcast. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. There's a couple of things you need to know at the start of this. One is I'm in a pub because uh, I needed to find somewhere to record it and it's raining outside. So if there's a bit of background noise, apologies for that. Hopefully you can hear me loud and clear. The uh, second thing, and probably the most important, is there's going to be virtually no snooker on this podcast at all. Um, and I'm also aware that there'll be people tuning in because they're interested in my guest today. So I should explain 
what I'm doing here. Basically, I've written a play uh, for the theatre. It's going to be on at the Edinburgh Festival in August, and I thought I would uh, just take the opportunity, as it's my podcast, to uh, discuss it and hopefully persuade a few of you to maybe come along and, and see us uh, at the Edinburgh Festival. The play is called The D-List. It's a comedy about a man who becomes a reality TV star and then attempts to keep the sort of flame of celebrity going and various things go badly wrong for him. Uh, it's going to be on at the venue. It's called the Underbelly Med Quad. It's venue 302, for those of you who've been to the festival and have the fringe brochure. We're on the, it's August 3rd to the 29th. We're on pretty much every day, 5.35 for an hour, and uh, tickets are on sale. So... Uh, you can go to edfringe.com, you can go to underbellyedinburgh.co.uk or you can go to shrapneltheatre.com, shrapnel are the producers. It's directed by Phil Croft and it stars Sam Curry, who is my guest. Sam uh, is uh, he's an actor, he's an author, he's a private tutor um, and some of you will know him from the BBC TV series The Apprentice last year uh, where I, I thought he did pretty well until inevitably uh, Lord Sugar... Uh, I was going to say gave him the finger, but that, that sounds kind of wrong. Fired him, let's, let's not be coy. But uh, since then he's been working hard as an actor here in London and various other places, and he's playing the main role in the play. So Sam, tell us about the play. Hello, yes. Um, so the play, it was really interesting. So uh, Dave um, actually sent it to me, you sent it to me yeah. um, online, and I read through it first. I thought it was, it was quite a bold move sending it, because <laughs> it's a sort of a play about someone whose life is completely destroyed by reality TV <laughs> um, but I, I thought it was quite I thought it was really funny like as Dave said it's a comedy um, so yeah well, what, what, what attracted you well maybe I should explain what happened okay so The Apprentice was on the telly and I was watching it and I'd just written I'd written this play after the last Edinburgh Festival so that was last August wrote a draft of it and I was thinking, okay, well, how do I... I'd love to do it at the next Edinburgh Festival this year, but how do I sort of push it to the front of the queue? How do I get people to, to notice it? And I thought one way would be casting, but I can't just sort of ring up Ryan Gosling or someone and say, you know, do you want to be in my, in my play? So I had to think sort of differently. And then about this time, The Apprentice came back on the TV, and I must have read somewhere that there was a professional actor on it, um, and it turned out to be Sam. And I just thought, well, this is interesting because I've written a play about a member of the public who goes on reality TV, and here is a member of the public on reality TV, but he's an actor. So, and you looked about me about the right age of the part, and I thought, well, you know, he might, he might sort of be a possibility. And I had no reason... I mean, in the old days, I'd have to write to the BBC and probably would still be waiting to, to hear back, but you were on Twitter. I tweeted you. I said, would you be interested in reading it? And long story short, here we are. Yeah. Well, I read the play once you sent it over. I thought it was really funny. Um, and I thought it was interesting because although I'd done the reality TV side of it, obviously to do a play, you need an actor to do it. And I think it is quite a yeah. unique combination to have an actor that's done reality TV because I think it's, it's, not, a, it's not a big crossover. Um, so it's great for me because I can approach the role obviously from the, the position of an actor. So someone, you know, I can research the part and I know I've done Edinburgh twice before. Um, and lots of other projects obviously since but also I can approach it from the knowledge of someone that's actually been in that scenario Um, and I thought it was really funny I think for me it's a really interesting project because um, I think although it's out you know my my acting profile is out there and I'm well represented not everyone that's watched The Apprentice is going to know that that's what I do so for me it was a really good opportunity as well to do something kind of a bit self-deprecating and I think I think comedy is the best way to kind of put a message out there and say to people look this is what I actually do 
but also I can poke fun at myself. I think yeah. I think it's a good skill to have in life to be able to. Well, that was my one concern was that you would think, who's this guy like taking the Mickey out of me? But uh, that wasn't the intention. Although I also thought, well, it's not like we know each other anyway. You know, <laughs> worst, the worst worst comes to the worst. Tell me to go away. I'll go away. But it was interesting that you kind of recognised the irony in it. Yeah, because in a way. It sort of serves as a bit of a warning, I think, the play to people who go on these shows because it is tempting when you have a certain profile suddenly and you are sort of recognised here and there to sort of want that to continue. And some people have yeah. done that and some, some people, people yeah. don't. And you decided not to. Yeah. You're focusing on your sort of chosen profession. Yeah. Um, but did you see sort of the irony that like, tempted you to do it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I, thought, I thought the kind of... Yeah, exactly, the irony of it. And also that it's a chance to be a bit self-deprecating. Yeah. And I think that's always a funny thing, is seeing yeah. someone being able to poke fun at themselves. Um, so for me, that's kind of why I took it on. It's a really funny script in itself. I mean, even if you didn't have someone from reality TV doing it it would be an amazingly funny script and people should go and see it but I think you're right I think having me do it as well there's just like there's just an extra level there of like kind of dramatic irony which yeah yeah, which is I think it's great you, you mentioned you've done the Edinburgh Festival before. There'll be people listening to this who won't know what the Edinburgh Festival is because not everyone has been there. So can you just explain, A, what it is and why you like it so much? Okay, so um, the festival is basically... It's it's all fringe theatre. So um, it's a huge festival that happens throughout August. Um, it takes over the city of Edinburgh. They basically turn all the buildings in Edinburgh into mini theatre venues. And all sorts of people can apply to go up and put things on and it's really great because you get a mix of cabaret and comedy and theatre and you get some professional theatre you get some amateur dramatics you get some sort of people just breaking into professional theatre it's just a great vibe there's so many writers and comedians and actors there and essentially it's just one big party for a month with loads of really great theatre I've seen some of the worst shows I've ever seen in Edinburgh and I've also seen some of the best shows I've ever seen in Edinburgh because there's no boundaries, you know, people can really are free to put on what they want, there's no sort of arts council funding and direction there's no kind of rules or red tape or big production companies it's all kind of individual people putting on great art, Um, it's just brilliant It's the biggest arts festival in the world so that kind of speaks for itself and like you say it's not just theatre, it's comedy, every comedian who's who's anyone who's been through there at some point dance, even like free shows, there's always some guy juggling fire or juggling knives in the street or something and, and it's kind of like a little bubble isn't it for a month where it's almost like you can go there and just escape all the other stuff in, in, in life and yeah. in the world. Absolutely, it's great and, and I, think, I think the majority of people probably spend the whole month hungover because <laughs> everyone is constantly seeing theatre and socialising but it's just great because you're just surrounded by loads of other really kind of creative people all trying to just kind of create something together and everyone's really yeah. supportive and everyone's just there to have a good time and enjoy it so, yeah. so here's something that interests me as, as someone who the idea of acting would terrify me mm. so why of all the things to do in life are you an actor? Uh, that's a good question I think I think as an actor it's either in your blood or it's not and if it's in your blood you can't do anything but act mm. I think it's one of those things where you just need you have a need to, to want to do it and I I basically, I, so I studied um, English um, at university and for me, I think I came into acting largely through like an understanding of drama but also wanting to do something physical and something practical as well as something kind of intellectual and for me, it was acting is just such an amazing combination between the, uh, like an understanding of words and text and also how you relate that in a kind of physical, performative way. Um, 
I just, I just, I just couldn't do anything else. I think it's one of the most interesting art forms in terms of communication. Like essentially, all acting is about communicating and how people communicate and relationships between people, how an actor communicates with an audience, his fellow actors. Um, it's just a fascinating profession. Yeah. You are easily the cleverest person we've ever had on this podcast. Although, in fairness, that's not saying a hell of a lot. Uh, no offence to anyone else who's been on it. But uh, was there a moment? Because some, like, some uh, young kids, well, they'll, they'll watch like a football match and they'll see you know, maybe the World Cup and they'll see someone score the winning goal and they'll think, right, I want to be a footballer. Was there a moment where, I don't know, you saw a performance where you thought, yes, that's for me? Um, that's interesting. I don't... Not really. It didn't... It, I think... Um, it was never that I saw other people acting and thought that's really what I wanted to do. I think for me it was more that when I was a child, I kind of I really enjoyed performing, but I was never a child actor. And then I think as I grew older, my kind of interest in um, my interest in like reading plays, and then my kind of the part of my blood that was to do with performance, they kind of just merged, and that for me was the moment where I thought this is actually a career that I really need to do and get into because. Um, also, I was really lucky. I, um, at university, um, there was an amazing theatre team. Like Cambridge has a really rich history for yeah. performance and theatre. Um, and I was really lucky to kind of be part of that. And, I, you know, I was doing one or two plays every eight weeks at university. It was completely mad. Um, and it was great. I got to tour all over the world. You know, I went to Japan. I went all around Europe doing theatre. I, I largely came into actually acting through Shakespeare in a lot of ways. Um, I think he's obviously one of the best, if not the best, playwright to have ever lived um, minus two obviously <laughs> yeah, I love that pause then yeah, yeah, no, I, think, I, I think I would probably agree with you <laughs> um, I, I, I think I really came to it through I think in terms of learning performance like, yeah. you, like if anyone wants to learn how to perform like start with Shakespeare and move on from there um, and I think for me uh, yeah that's, that's kind of how I came to it um, but it's really great now that I've kind of been out of university one doing loads of other projects I'm doing more and more contemporary theatre modern theatre new writing and it's really interesting to kind of approach those obviously in a different way but to take things that you've learned from your past training and your past kind of acting experience and apply that to what you're doing now but it's a notoriously difficult profession isn't it you know it's the old cliche about actors sort of they say they're resting and what they mean is they've got no work I mean how have you found the sort of um, that, that side of it yeah I, I think it is a difficult profession I think the problem with acting is that there are, there are more people trying to get into it than there are parts available I think it's a profession where you really have to get used to constant rejection um, that's, just a, that's just a part of the job I also think that ironically 30% of the job is performing and 70% is everything else it's yeah. auditions it's preparing for auditions it's chasing agents um, or getting an agent if you don't have one um, networking all of that is, is the, the actual job the performing is the funding um, but I think you know like I said if it's something that you feel that you need to do and you have to do then it's kind of in your blood and whatever you do you'll, you'll keep going back to acting until you make it and I think once you're you know, when you're working with a great cast and you're working with a great script and you're either, you know, you're in front of the camera or you're on that stage, that moment makes all the rest of it worthwhile. And I think it's like any, it's like any um, vocational profession. If it's something that you really feel like a passion for and a desire to do, then you accept all the bad and you also kind of rejoice in all the good. And I think, I think it's like lots of jobs. There's, there, are, there are positives and negatives to everything that everyone does in terms of work. It strikes me auditioning is rather brutal sort of process. You know, you typically go along, you'll do a few minutes of whatever they give you or whatever you prepared, and then you sort of wait to hear and, you know, you know you're up against a load of other people. I mean, is, is that basically what it's like? 
yeah, I mean, I think with auditions, it's, it is tricky because, it, well, it depends on the casting director, but some, sometimes they will get hundreds and hundreds of people in for the same part that you're going for, sometimes thousands. Um, especially at this CV level, you know, when you're sending in your CVs and your showreels, or your agent is. Um, you're, yeah, you are competing against so many other people, but I think you kind of have to learn with auditions that the majority of the time it's not necessarily about the audition. Like, as long as you have learnt the piece well and you go in and you give an honest performance um, that represents your ability, if they don't pick you, a lot of the time it's that you're just not right for the part. Mm. And I think that takes a long time to get used to because everyone in life, you know, it's ingrained in human nature to take rejection personally. Um, and I think as an actor, it's one thing you really have to get used to is not taking rejection as something personal. It's not necessarily because they hated you yeah, yeah. or anything else. It was just that there was someone who suited the part better than you. And that can be down to hair colour, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in filming. It's, yeah. it's all about looks. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what about learning lines? Because, um, again, to a lot of people, that would be really terrifying, particularly something like Shakespeare, where it's very sort of deep and dense and there's a lot to learn. I mean, how, is there a process for that? Um, yeah, I, th I think everyone has a different process in terms of learning lines. Um, one, one thing that makes a big difference is the time scale. If you have a couple of months to rehearse, which rarely happens, um, but if you do, then it's great because you can take your time learning your lines. I mean, I'm sort of one of those people that I will take my lines everywhere that I go with me whilst I'm rehearsing and just constantly be learning them. Some people are, you know, they have to shut themselves away and just kind of dedicate a certain amount of time to it and then they can't kind of look at them when they're doing other things. Um, in terms of Shakespeare, I actually, I find learning Shakespeare a lot easier than learning modern lines because the great thing about Shakespeare is because it's written in iambic pentameter, you know as soon as you were a word wrong in your lines because it doesn't fit the yeah, rhythm yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, or it doesn't fit the rhyme scheme. Yeah. Um, whereas with contemporary lines, if you, you know, change a couple of words here and there, you don't always notice the difference. But then I suppose... It's, you know, maybe not if you're doing Beckett, but if you're doing certain modern theatre, the odd word difference here and there doesn't really matter. I mean, that, that depends on the director, I suppose, and how kind of, how strict they are with, with actors and their lines. Um, again, I think I probably wouldn't advise someone to go into acting if they were terrible at learning lines or memory. <laughs> like, it's one of the skills you need as an actor. Um, especially a lot of the time you'll get auditions um, and your agent will send through uh, the ident, uh, you know, a couple of pages of script the night before yeah. and you're expected to know it the next day like yeah. that, that can be stressful and then you write off your evening to go and learn lines yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, it's like anything else practice makes perfect I suppose and do you, how nervous do you get because I've seen a few actors who are physically shaking before they go on yeah. some others seem incredibly calm I mean, where do you fall on that spectrum? Um, I think anyone who says they're not nervous before they go and do a show is lying. I think there's always some nerves. Um, I think especially when the show is a new show, you know, you're just, you know, the first couple of opening nights, press nights, that's always nerve-wracking. I think the longer and longer you do a show, the less nervous you get. You know, once you've been doing the same play for a few months, then, you know, the nerves are slightly less. But I think, for me at least, there's always that moment. And for me, it's probably about... 10 seconds before I go on stage the nerves hit in I'm, I'm not nervous kind of waiting around in the dressing room beforehand it's that moment kind of when you're you know just in the wings about to go on that moment is always a bit nerve wracking mm -hmm. um, but then as soon as you're on stage they just the nerves disappear mm -hmm. because you're then you know you're in the moment you're in the part and you're focusing on your other your fellow actors and their characters so you kind of forget it's amazing acting it's one of those things where you know you can be doing a play for two and a half hours and the time goes by and 
minute. It's, it's, as if, it's as if you're never on stage, apart from when you're waiting backstage. Yeah. And you have long parts off. That's, that's probably the most boring and time consuming. In terms of, because our, our play's a comedy, and um, is that harder to do? Because obviously the audience are part of that. I mean, hopefully they'll be laughing at various places. And I guess when you rehearse it, you're maybe expecting a laugh to come, and maybe it doesn't, or maybe they laugh more than you think. How, yeah. how hard is that? I think comedy is really interesting. I think everyone approaches comedy differently. Um, I certainly, for me, in the past comedies I've done, I think a really important thing is is never to try and force the laughs, or never to try to play for laughs. Like if something is funny, yeah. and you perform it honestly and well, the moment itself is funny and people will laugh. I think because you're not doing stand-up, you know, this isn't um, a stand-up show, so it's not like you necessarily have punchlines in the same yeah. way. Like it's yeah. it's a play that is a comic play, and therefore it's the circumstances and the characters that are funny, and people. I, I've always found that people laugh at completely different things sometimes, you know, and, you know, some people also give different types of laughter, some people give, like, full-on belly laughs, some people kind of just have a little titter to themselves, I think, for me, it's always been about, if you focus on what you're actually trying to say to the other character, um, the audience will find the situation in itself funny, I think as soon as you start trying to make the audience laugh, I mean, it's like... It's like anything. It's it's as if it's kind of uh, like almost like reverse psychology. If you're trying to make someone do something, it's yeah. very unlikely that they're going to yeah, yeah. therefore do it. If, yeah. if you're not focusing on that and you just allow the moment to exist, mm. I think then it can be the funniest moment to write. But also, you don't want to signpost it too much, do you? Because it, this is a, this is a story. It's not just a series of jokes. It's a proper story, and you've got to kind of play the truth of that rather than just sort of wink at the audience and say, "By the way, there's a big joke coming in a minute." Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because I, I think exactly it's exactly right. If you do that, they kind of audience are thinking oh god I've got to laugh now and that's, that's just not a comfortable moment to be in I think that's the thing about comedy I think I know there's a lot of comics that work on awkwardness and I do think that awkwardness can be funny but I think the, the majority of the time when people are relaxed and they're feeling comfortable in the performance so that's when they're most free and ready to laugh um, as soon as like you say as soon as you start kind of signposting and telling the audience they need to be laughing it's kind of going to cause the opposite reaction yeah, yeah, yeah. do you have a particular process for acting I mean I'm not asking you to sort of give away secrets but is the particular method that you've learned that you follow or, or is it different depending on what play you're doing that's really interesting I think I think first of all all different actors have all different methods and the different ways that they approach um, different ways that they approach the play the plays that they do um, in terms of my approach I think I have there are certain things that I do every time the same and then there are certain things that change depending on the role so for me the first thing to do is to really get to know the text really well because I think ultimately nearly everything you need about a character and a part is in the lines that you're given I mean different people are different some people believe about creating massive backstories and an emotional recall and that's fine but for me I think that one of the most important things is every line you're saying you're saying it for a reason like what effect are you trying to get from someone else in that line and I think for me, it's always about being outward-looking. As soon as you become introverted as an actor and you focus on yourself and kind of what you're... You know, there's different theories that... You know, there's this one theory about first circle, second circle, and third circle. And, you know, the first circle is a kind of inward focus on yourself. The second circle is kind of between you and the other actor. And the third circle is telling it to the audience. And I think, you know, there's a kind of common... That the second circle is where you kind of want to be. You want to be focused on the other character what are you trying to say to them why are you saying it to them like truth in the moment there's an amazing book um, I read by David Mamet called um, I think it's called True or False and it's about heresy and acting 
And in that, that, that was one of the books that really kind of influenced the way I approach acting. It basically said that everything you need about your character is in the words. It's in the lines. And if you, if you deliver those lines honestly and you have trust and faith in the moment of the, of the play, you know, you, you're not trying to create a fantasy world. You're trying to really engage with someone and talk to them. I think, for me, that's the most important rule of acting. Now, that doesn't mean that, depending on the part, I, I, you know, I do approach it completely differently. For example, Shakespeare, I would never, ever create backstory for. You know, I'd never create mind maps of my character. It's, it's ludicrous. That's not how Shakespeare wrote. I don't think it's the right approach to Shakespeare. Everything you need about a character in Shakespeare is in the lines. There's no subtext in Shakespeare. There's, I mean, that's quite a bold thing to say, but I fundamentally believe it. There's no, You've said it, so... Yeah, there's no subtext. There's no... There's no subtext in Shakespeare. It's everything you need is in the lines. I don't think that's always the same for different plays. So, yeah, depending on the part, like I might approach it slightly differently. But for me, it starts with the it starts with the text. Because um, some actors, I mean, like if you say Daniel Day Lewis, if he's going to play, I don't know, a lumberjack or a car salesman, he will he will do that job for like a year beforehand. There's a great yeah. story about which is probably not true, but it, it should be about Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier on the, the film Marathon Man. And Hoffman is playing this character who does a lot of running, does a lot of jogging. And there's a particular scene he has with Olivier where he has to arrive into the scene as if he's been running. So he ran two miles, arrived into the scene, and was out out of breath to deliver the lines. (laughs) So when he sort of calmed down, Olivier said to him, you know, what's going on, Dustin? And he said, you know, well, I I felt I should run the two miles to, to get, you know, into the scene properly. And Olivia looked at him and said, have you ever tried acting? You know? <laughs> and now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it's sort of, you've got the two traditions there. You've got the sort of British theatre and the sort of New York, sort of new yeah. wave of, of acting. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like you're more in the sort of British tradition. Maybe, yeah. I think it, it's such an... In- method is so interesting. It's like, like any job and any profession. Different people are always going to approach things differently. And I tell you what, every actor thinks that their method yeah. is the right method. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I think ultimately whatever gets an actor to deliver that right performance is the best thing that they should do. I think, um, oh, what was I going to say? Um, I had a really interesting point when you were talking about uh, <laughs> Olivia and Hoffman and running into the scene. Um, it's, gone, it's gone out of my head. Um, I think uh, it's kind of getting into the character is an interesting thing, like, and living the part. I think, oh yeah, that was it. Um, so I, I, um, I watched a really interesting interview with Meryl Streep, who I think is a really phenomenal actress, and um, she, in it, one of the things she said is that when she takes a part, she always looks at, she starts with inside herself, she finds something about the character that's similar in her already. So in a sense it's method acting, but in a sense it's not, it's kind of, it's finding similarities between yourself and the character and drawing on those and expanding on those and bringing those out of yourself because ultimately it's really hard in acting I, I don't agree in this idea of becoming a character I don't think it's real you know it, it doesn't physically exist you know there isn't some sort of transubstantiation you know, nothing is physically changing on stage like, ma- acting is not some magic voodoo ritual like, yeah. you essentially have to take who you are as a person and, and build on that and, and I think work from within inside yourself to find the character within you and ultimately you have to remember that once you've been cast in a part you've been cast for something about you that's different to anybody else so why would you completely transform yourself for a part why? And I don't think that limits your versatility. I mean, if you look at Meryl Streep, she is kind of celebrated as one of the most versatile 
screen actresses. Um, and I think, I think, you know, like I said, different people have different ways of getting to the same result. And I think whatever works for someone is the best way that they should approach something. But I, there are practical things. Like running two miles before coming on stage is a really big deal and difficult to do. And especially if you've got a scene before it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing, and this, this I find interesting, because everything you've said I thought was really interesting. But it seems to me acting is, a, is almost a profession that when people start talking about it, you know, there'll be maybe people listening now if they go, listen to him going on as if he's, you know, gone off to war. It's only, it's only putting on slap and going on stage sort of thing. Mm. And, you know, you, you, I mean, Emma Thompson recently made a few comments about the, the Euro referendum and was immediately shot down as some out-of-touch lovey who, you know, doesn't live in the real world. Whereas, actually, she has to access in her job emotions and, and thoughts that a lot of people actually ignore a lot of the time. Um, and you hear people say things like, oh, well, you know, this theatre, you know, you're not, you're not sort of curing cancer, which is perfectly true, but people who are curing cancer might actually like going to the cinema and the theatre. You know, we, we live in, a, in an interconnected world and our culture kind of defines us. So I find the way it's all kind of dismissed a bit off, really. Yeah, I think, I think people are quite quick to judge. Um, I think a lot of people think that actors generally act because they can't do anything else. Um, and in a sense, that's true, but not in the same way. Actors act because they physically couldn't do anything but act. Like, you have to do it. That doesn't mean that they're not capable of doing a, a number of other things. So I think... But also, it seems that some actors, and I wouldn't include you in this, but some actors only seem comfortable when they're acting. If you look at uh, footage of someone like Peter Sellers on chat shows in the, in the 70s, he would always go on doing silly voices. He would never be himself because it was almost like he couldn't be himself. Mm. Is, is there anything in that, do you think? I think, that's an interesting one. I think I think acting is 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 incredibly cathartic. I think anyone who says that they don't act for some sort of personal reason, you know, I would be really interested in that because for me and I think for a lot of people, one of the fascinating things about acting is it's, it it teaches you as an actor a lot about life and a lot about yourself as a person. I think it teaches you a lot about other people. Like just like you said, just accessing all those different people's experiences and, and essentially kind of empathising and sympathising with a whole number of experiences and people that you don't really have anything to do with is a fascinating profession and also I think it, yeah it really kind of shapes you as a character and I certainly know that acting as well I mean oh god if you go back to it like theories of tra- right, there are theories of tragedy which essentially Aristotle one of his main things about tra- tragedy which is essentially the earliest form of drama was that it's a cathartic process like you go, which is it's basically about a release of excessive emotion. So you go to the theatre in order to witness this controlled environment where like emotional excesses can be purged. Okay? So if you kind of translate that, yeah, maybe that's a bit theoretical. But I think it stands true in that theatre does allow a kind of side of society that's maybe not always accessed or yeah. suppressed, or certainly within yourself as an actor, it allows a kind of purging of those emotions, and kind of, which is ultimately cathartic and refreshing. That's the first mention of Aristotle on this podcast, and I suspect <laughs> prob- probably the last. The point I was making, really, I think it's a very easy profession to sort of shoot down, but it's interesting that whenever you get a sort of repressive government anywhere in the world, the first thing they do is they start burning books, they jail writers, they, they sort of stop culture because they find it sort of quite dangerous because it threatens, you know, their position of power. Um, but anyway, let's, let's move on. Speaking of power, uh, Lord, <laughs> Lord Sugar, <laughs> we, should, we should mention. Okay. Uh, we have to address The Apprentice purely because yeah. it is kind of relevant to, to this yeah. play. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why... Why did you go? Why, Why did you apply? That's a good question. Let's start yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Why, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it's, it is a good question because I think a lot of people look at it and think The Apprentice and acting, what's that all about? Um, I think, so basically, a lot, like you said, a lot of actors have downtime. And, um, well, there are two main reasons. One is, one is a practical reason and one is a kind of philosophical reason. I'll kind of go into both. So the practical reason is a lot of actors have downtime. And I think what's a real shame is a lot of people that have a lot of potential in acting end up spending the majority of their time doing whatever their other job is. Um, to support themselves and don't give themselves enough time to audition and rehearse and do everything else they need to do in terms of their acting career. Now, I was working... I think the BBC skewed it a bit. I was working at the time as a, as a, as a private tutor in between kind of acting roles. And I did really enjoy it. You know, I've had a very academic background. I do like teaching. There's something very similar between acting and teaching. Um, now, I went on to The Apprentice because I had already decided before I did the show to set up my own tutoring company because essentially, if I could manage manage and run this company, I would be doing less of the teaching myself and ultimately it would make my schedule more flexible so that I could spend more time doing the acting. And also, you know, when you're doing a job yourself and someone's taking a big cut of what you're doing, it sort of becomes, you sort of start to question why you're working for someone else when you could be doing it for yourself or have other people working for you. Um, in terms of applying to it, I completely applied on a whim. I thought, well, this will be an interesting experience and if, if something, you know, if I do well on it and the tutoring company, it'll be a really good platform to, to springboard that tutoring company. I also, there's a really interesting Natalie Portman speech where she gives at the Harvard commencement ceremony and she talks about jumping into the unknown. It's not jumping into your fear because she says how fear is kind of an, an important emotion that we need to protect ourselves, but jumping into the unknown. And she talked about her directorial debut, how she... Um, started doing this directing role before she even really knew what she was doing and there was a similar thing about The Apprentice like I would never have written a really comprehensive business plan and had any idea about what I was doing really unless I'd applied for The Apprentice because they start asking you for a business plan and they start asking you for all these things that you need and um, it, it forced me to really kind of get going on that I, I think the other reason is uh, I think partly with acting you I think you're only a good actor. So many actors like like shut themselves away and they become like really kind of shut off from the world. And I think essentially as an actor you're portraying the world, right? You're portraying the world on a stage. All the world's a stage. Um, and if you haven't experienced life, if you don't experience things in life, like how on earth can you possibly try and portray things on you know in the theatre or on screen? So I thought well, the, the Apprentice is going to be full of experiences that I'd never get to do otherwise, and ultimately that's going to make me a richer and more interesting person, and therefore a better actor. Um, so, I guess in a kind of philosophical sense, that's why that's why I did it as well. So, how did it? And this is pertinent to the to the play, which I will be plugging again at the end of this podcast, by the way, in terms of when we're on and so on. But so, so suddenly you're on the telly every week on a very popular yeah. TV show. You must have been, you know, recognised. I mean, how was how was suddenly coping with people? Yeah. Oh, hi, Salmon, or or maybe yeah. you know, screw you, sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it was weird. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was weird. It still is weird. I mean, six months on, although in reality a year on because we filmed it a long time before it went out. Um, yeah, it's it's strange. I I don't. I'm not used to it. I don't think that I will ever be used to it. Luckily for me, there are certain things that have helped. One, I live in London, and London is an amazingly anonymous city. Um, people are incredibly unsociable, which is great because <laughs> um, it means that no one really comes and talks to you. Like when I went to visit friends that were doing The Apprentice, or when we all kind of met up in other cities, um, we kind of went to Birmingham and other places. I think there are, you know, the communities are slightly smaller. Um, we have no. I live in Birmingham. We have no celebrities. So right. Well, <laughs> I just think it's yeah I, I noticed when I went out of London actually the attention was a lot greater yeah. 
Um, sometimes it's not, you know, I don't have a problem with it. I don't covet it. I think some people that did the show definitely covet it and they, they do a lot to kind of yeah. keep it going. I don't. I would kind of rather it didn't happen. But at the same time, you know, you can't be you can't be difficult about it if someone wants to take a photo with you like yeah. it's no skin off my nose to, yeah, yeah. to take a photo with someone I don't I don't mind it actually um, but what also you've got is and this is this is something that's changed and it's something that we address in the play as well you have the internet now yeah. so you have social media people can contact you directly yeah. they can say whatever they like yeah. and I'm sure they have done and, yeah. and now I get the sense that I think from talking to you that it was mainly sort of positive but I'm guessing yeah. it wasn't all positive um, yeah I was very lucky I was very lucky I was very they, they really kind of before you go on the show you have to see counsellors and all sorts of people to kind of, yeah to make sure that you're kind of prepared for if if things go really badly I was incredibly lucky um, I, I can't stress it enough I would say 99% of all the feedback I got was positive and I'm I'm feel really grateful for that um, yes you get you, there's two things you get not only the negative and I think the other problem is you get the inappropriate <laughs> so you get the negative and the inappropriate and those two things are slightly difficult to deal with the inappropriate sometimes you can laugh off and sometimes actually you think no no this is really going too far and I, this is an invasion of my kind of privacy um, because I think <laughs> I think what, I'm just trying to think what you mean I think I probably I think I probably do know but yeah. anyway but yeah we'll maybe gloss over it yeah um <laughs> But, you know, I think you have to be so aware. If you're going to do anything that puts you in the public eye, especially something like The Apprentice, which is kind of primetime TV, you know that people are going to form... And, and the way that the show's edited, everyone knows that the show is edited to make people into stereotypes and characters. Um, you know that you're going to get some strong opinions via social media. Um, I would say probably the most negative came from other <laughs> candidates right. for each other, blasting, you know, right. saying horrible things about each other. Yeah. Um, but is it hard? Again, you're talking about, like being rejected as an actor and having to deal with that is it hard if you sit really vicious about yourself not to actually respond and, and say but by the way you know I'm a, I'm a human being over here yeah I, yeah I mean yeah I think you have to have a certain level of I would never ever tell anyone who was kind of had a like everyone is slightly insecure right but anyone that had kind of crippling insecurity I would tell them the last thing they should do is go on any kind of public yeah. platform because people people do you know what it mostly is it's mostly just time wasters people that don't have anything to do with their lives and the best thing that they can think of to do on a Thursday evening is to write some really scathing horrible thing yeah. and, you or, know, or send you a play <laughs> <laughs> sending me a play anyone send me plays I'm more than happy to read them and, and sometimes you, like, you just have to look at it you just have to think like, you almost have to pity these people rather than let it affect you you just have to think well I'm really sorry that that's what you decided to spend your evening doing is writing this really long awful message to someone and, and ultimately you just have to feel sorry for them because everything that, I read this really interesting article that said that everything that everyone says says more about them as a person than what they're actually trying to yeah, say to you yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think there's a lot of truth in that and I think that's the way that I look at it is that if they're saying something really nasty to you it's probably saying more about the way that they feel about certain issues or the way that they feel about themselves more than it really is about you and also you have to remember that both in good ways and bad ways and, and you do have to look at both the same you can't just take all the positive and ignore all the negative yeah, yeah. as much as people send me really lovely things which is lovely to hear and people send me negative things you, you always have to look at yourself and think well this is lovely but you don't really know me yeah. you know you've seen me for an hour a week on, on a heavily edited TV show so you know, when people talk about you being their idol, I mean, it's lovely to hear, but you think, well, you haven't seen me at six o'clock in the morning. Well, you have on TV, but, you know, but also, you know, the negative, like, you don't, no one knows you. No one knows me. I, I, I think it came up on the show, weirdly, when even 
someone on the show started really heavily accusing me of things. You just think, you don't know, you don't really know me. Yeah. Like, you don't, you're not qualified to talk about me in this way, and, and therefore you just you just ignore it. I think you just kind of let it wash off. Yeah. But your big triumph on the on the Apprentice was uh, there was a task which you led. Uh, to design a children's book. Um, remind us what that was called? Snotty Dink was yeah, the original I, book. I knew yeah. that, I just wanted to hear you say. <laughs> um, now, but I misunderstood this because I was convinced that you'd won that task, but yeah. I looked it up last night and you didn't. But, but, yeah. it, but however, it ended up, because copies were published, it ended up going for thousands on eBay or certainly hundreds. Yeah, and, and, shy of a hundred. And, yeah. and, and from that, you ended up writing your own. Yes. Yeah, Tell we, us about that. So that's an, inter- I mean, that's an interesting life lesson in itself. So we, yeah, we did lose that task, but we, we produced a much better book. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just, we just did. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, I think, and I was, you know, at the time it was really sad to lose that task in the moment, but my goodness hindsight is an amazing thing I'm really glad we lost that task because losing that task meant we had a whole boardroom meant that we had a whole You're Fired episode <laughs> all about our book and actually yeah. it turned out that the publicity in the press was much greater because we lost because everyone was slightly stunned that something that was better artistically lost and it kind of called into question like the, the ethics there were articles written about the ethics of The Apprentice and you know whether you can make something something that's artistic can you put it into these really commercial contexts and a lot of it was luck. A lot of it was how the show was set up. Um, yeah. Anyway. But the bottom line is, you then wrote the book. I did. I did then write a book. So, so because off the back of that book, we it was mainly thanks to um, an author, Cressida Cowell, who wrote the How to Train Your Dragon series. Um, she was so complimentary about the book, and actually has been an amazing mentor since the show. Um, and really encouraged me and I wrote a book I wrote a book on the other candidates to release a book before Christmas and again that got kind of national press coverage and I think it's great what was that called? that was called Gobble Gruff okay so there's a theme Um, just nonsense words Um, and I was really lucky to have that kind of platform and springboard and had I never done The Apprentice I never would have written children's Mm. books even though I worked with children loads and obviously did an English degree it didn't really cross my mind but I'm so glad I did because now it's my main occupation in my downtime um, between acting roles um, when I'm not auditioning and learning lines and doing everything else um, I write I write books I write children's books um, so the first draft just completed yesterday the first draft of the newest one um, which I'm really looking forward to and I, I find it immensely rewarding and again it's I find it's funny because it's it, you kind of uh, in this profession you end up justifying what you do before anyone criticises you just because you're all so used to it yeah I think kind of running a tutoring agency, writing children's books and acting, everyone's like, well, you can't be serious about all of them and do all of them. And the thing is, is they're immensely interconnected. They're all essentially about communication, all of them. When you boil them down, they're all about how we communicate through language, through storytelling, through pictures, through art forms. Um, so I guess that's just where my obsession lies. Okay, so that's, that's a positive that's come out of the, the show. I mean, but when you look back on the experience, what, what have you sort of learned about yourself, if anything? Um, Not to do it again. <laughs> would you do it again? Would I do it again? Uh, yeah, I, I would do it again. I would do it again. I mean, I, I wouldn't do it again because it would be the same. But okay, here, well, here's another way. Of putting if it. I could, here's another way of putting it. You must have had offers to do other TV things, and you didn't. You yes. haven't done any. Yeah. So that must. That's a conscious decision. Yes. So I have mainly because. Okay. So I um, I did The Apprentice not to be on TV. And I don't care if people believe that or not. I you didn't see the cameras, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew that that was going to be a side, you know, 
something uh, a kind of I, for me it was like a side product of it I did it because I thought this will be such an interesting couple of months of my life I will learn so much and I will kind of I'll come out with a, a skill set that I never had before it's essentially why I've done everything in life I didn't go to university to get a degree I went to university to learn you know I act to, to learn something about myself I, so that's the reason why I did it other TV shows that I've been offered since like I, I want to be serious about my career and, and the acting is really taking off and the book writing is going really well like I wouldn't I have no need I don't think I would gain anything from doing other TV shows right now especially not reality TV obviously in acting it's totally different but you know but it can become TV, sort of merry-go-round can't it you go on one you go on another totally and eventually you're, make, in, you're there in the jungle people make yeah <laughs> people make people make careers out of it I mean I have a good well not a good I have a loose friend who um did a certain reality TV show, she then went on did her brother, and you know, she's now on another reality TV show. She's made a whole career out of it. And you know what, like we should not in any way disrespect people who do reality TV as a career. Um, it's a huge multi-million pound industry and people make amazing amounts of money from it. And people watch the Yeah, yeah. There's a demand for it. You know, it's not what I want to do because I'm passionate about acting as a career, I'm passionate about writing these children's books. Um, so for me right now, it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense in my life to go and do more reality TV. That's why I haven't done it. Not because I have any like snobbery towards them. Mm. Um, I think you know they're a great learning experience. Mm. So what are your ambitions uh, as an actor? Do you have a certain type of thing you want to do? Do you want to get into TV, film? Have you got a certain uh, role that you're looking at that you want to play in the future? Apart from this one, obviously, that yeah. we do. <laughs> um, no, you say that though. I am genuinely so excited about going to Edinburgh. I haven't done it for the last like, year or two, two maybe. Um, and it's just the best time ever. I love it. I love going up there. Um, I'm really lucky. I've just signed with an agent in Los Angeles. Um, so I'm going out there for a while to work, which will obviously be TV and film. That's mainly where the focus is. But I never want to leave theatre totally. Um, everyone knows that knows anything about me. I'm obsessed with Shakespeare. I'd love to do more Shakespeare. I think when I'm really old, there's an amazing, amazing, amazing play called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee. I would love to pay George in that. I'm way too young now, and I don't know if I'll ever be the right type for the role, but I'd love to play that role. Um, but yeah, there's loads of roles I want to do. Um, and I, I would, I'd love, uh, in an ideal world, to, to have a career that kind of spans TV and um, film and theatre. I, I think the roles that appeal to me more are ones that are slightly more kind of intellectually challenging, um, roles that deal with interesting kind of domestic situations. I'm obsessed with anything that kind of its main focus is around kind of domestic drama or domestic tragedy. I find really interesting. Um, so something, yeah, anything like that would be great. America, so you're going to Los Angeles. That's, that's exciting. It is exciting. I'm, I'm really lucky. I have relatives that live out there. Oh. And my... Uh, British agent was very, very good in, in getting me some meetings set up out there. I met with a brilliant agency in America who are taking me on um, visa permitting, which I'm kind of working on at the moment. Um, and I just think Los Angeles. I love, you know, I love London. I love the UK. I've grown up in London my whole life. Um, the the industry is amazing here, but there's something about Los Angeles. It's just a vibe there. There's just a different, like it's a cliche, but it's true. Like it really is the land of opportunity, and people out there are much more open to discovering new talent. They're much more open to possibilities of, you know, something something exciting happening. Um, 
I think also I have a really rich background in, in theatre and, and performing theatre. Um, I don't have as much experience in TV and film, and I'm doing more and more now. And I think it would be really interesting um, transition to make. So They seem to really like British actors as well, don't they? They do. Well, yeah, they do. Um, actually, if you were looking kind of at last pilot season, a lot of the casting directors' write-ups, they were saying about how they were frequently going to British actors. Interestingly, not just for British roles. A lot of yeah. a lot of people you see playing American parts in British TV and film are British actors with doing an American accent. I think um, I don't know why that is. I think British people. I mean, these are all huge, like sweeping statements, and obviously it doesn't apply to a lot of people. But I think a lot of British people, especially actors, and to, to be in a British actor and to make it out to LA to kind of qualify for that level of this level of visas and everything, you have to be a very conscientious, very hardworking person. You have to take your career very seriously. So to be a British actor in America, I think there's already a kind of understanding that you are conscientious and you're hardworking, you're going to turn up on time and you'll, you'll know your lines. So I think in that sense, that, that's probably why you'd go for a British actor, because you know that already, just by virtue of the fact that they're out in America, having kind of qualified to be there, um, that there's a certain kind of resilience to them and, and uh, conscientiousness. But also, we have this great theatrical heritage, and you've, you've mentioned Shakespeare quite a few times already. It's obviously 400 years since he died, and, and, and why do you think... Uh, this is like quite a difficult question to answer briefly, but why has Shakespeare endured to the extent that it has? Because the emotions and the connections that he portrays are timeless. You can read certain passages from Shakespeare plays, and they could honestly be... They could apply to a relationship in the modern day. Kind of issues of jealousy and deception and, like, despair and existential crises, unrequited love, family feuds, they exist today as much as they ever did. Shakespeare was timeless even when he was writing. I think people forget that. Shakespeare was writing plays about events that were either fictional or happened in long-forgotten lands. He's never been necessarily of a time. He also, I'm going to put out, I, he, he's, he's changed and influenced the English language more than any other writer. So many phrases and ways that we think now are down to Shakespearean plays and his writing. Um, I think... I think that's why he's endured. I think I think the, the subjects that he deals with are timeless, and he wrote in a way that was so poetic and so concise that people like no one has paralleled since. Um, but so why is it then? Because I know quite a few people who find it actually hard to get into and almost intimidated by it. I know someone and this is absolutely true he said he once said that the only people who laugh at Shakespeare are English teachers <laughs> now, now but the, and there is a kind of yeah. an attitude that it's not quite for me right why, so why would that be if, if it's so universal yeah, I, it's funny because I, I'm not going to deny it the, the more intimately you know the text the more you're going to get out of it but that's like anything in life the more you understand something the more you can appreciate it having said that I think it's a largely down to I'm going to put it out there. I think it's largely down to Shakespeare being performed badly. Yeah. I think a lot of people, what they do is they take a Shakespeare text and they think, right, how can we make this contemporary? How can we make this relevant? And they put all this superfluous rubbish onto these plays to try and make them relevant. And, and the irony is that the messages that they're conveying are what are relevant. And what no one focuses on is making the audience understand the words that are being said. If a Shakespeare performer is doing their job their job is to make you understand what they're saying. If you understand what they're saying, that, that's the job of the act to die. Um, and it's interesting because I think so many performers don't, 
don't understand the text I speak. It's amazing the amount of people, even I know, that have performed Shakespeare. And you say to them, you know, you speak to them about a certain passage they've performed, and you say, like, what, you know, what does this line mean, or what does this word mean? And they don't even know as actors. And you think, how the hell can you try and make an audience understand if you don't understand what you're saying in the first place? Um, so I think, I think largely people that are reluctant to, to watch Shakespeare because they've experienced, you know, they haven't been watching the best Shakespeare. They haven't been watching a Shakespeare that really focuses on getting across the message. And now I'm not going to lie and say that someone's going to go and, that, you know, and, and understand everything. Of course not. But hopefully there will be moments that resonate with every audience member um, if it's performed well. And, um, yeah, I, I think... And it's in those moments that you really think, oh my God, I can relate to that, totally. You're right what you say about, about, about productions. I recently saw a, a version of The Tempest, which I thought was a comedy. It turned out it wasn't. But uh, anyway, we'll maybe gloss, over, <laughs> maybe gloss over that. We've got to wrap up in a minute. So yeah. if anyone's going to come to Edinburgh, and let's hope that they do, what advice would you have, maybe if you've never been to the festival before, in terms of you know, how, you, how you approach it? Because it can be a bit dizzying. There's so yeah. much going on, isn't there? I mean, there is a, there is a fringe programme which you can order from uh, the website edfringe.com and that, that lists all the shows but there's a lot of shows yeah they do They do little uh, one good thing about the fringe they do little um, kind of review shows called like the best of the fringe um, go and see those because they, you get snippets of loads and loads of different pieces of theatre um, and you can really just well okay so the problem with that is most of the time it's not theatre most of the time it's cabaret magic comedians um but for that kind of stuff, go and see the reviews, and then you can really pick up quickly like what what you are going to like and what you're not. Read reviews potentially. I mean, that's that's a tricky one because so many people review Edinburgh, so many people for publications that you know anyone can walk into and yeah. write a review for. So don't pay too much attention to them. But you know, the, the good papers, you know, if the Guardian reviews something, the Independent reviews something, you know that they're probably going to have something fairly wise to say um, and just put, keep your ear to the ground you know when you go to Edinburgh it's re- it, I think it becomes apparent very quickly what shows have got a buzz and a hype about them and what shows don't um, so I would say kind of keep your ear to the ground listen out to what other people are talking about and recommending and, uh, and yeah go along and see this ok and I meant to ask you at the start have you, have you ever played snooker? because <laughs> um, this is supposed to be a snooker podcast ok at school though this is really going to show my ignorance of the difference between snooker and pool yeah which is which yeah okay sorry guys sorry yeah it really is which is the one that has multicolored balls and which is the one that has just black and just red and yeah red and yellow is pool pool and snooker is played on a bigger table on a bigger table with reds and colours with reds and colours yeah so one of them I think snooker I used to play in a uh, sixth one because we used to have a, well it's probably pool because it was a smaller table though. Yeah. probably pool you can play snooker on a small table okay maybe it was just, I think it was snooker on a small table because it had like stripes on block colours um, it, had, it had one in the common room so quite often at lunch we used to go and play um, I was alright yeah. I don't know much about it uh, <laughs> clearly yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know it's not, I'm not going to lie I know yeah. what I know about and I don't know what I don't know okay. about well when we're in Edinburgh we'll have a game that's yeah. something that'll change your life yeah right okay well I'll just reiterate what, what this play is it's called The D-List it's a comedy it's on at the Edinburgh Festival which runs from August the 3rd to the 29th our venue is Underbelly Med Quad that's venue 302 in the programme it's on every day 5.35 for an hour please come and see us uh, you can look it up on edfringe.com and rest assured I'll be tweeting basically every day until August about it because I'm very excited about it it's something a bit different for me and if you've made it through this far in the podcast uh, there will be a prize uh, in the post Sam 
thank you very much. You've been real, I could talk all day to you, really interesting, and I'm very excited that you're going to be doing this. I think we're going to have a lot of fun, and hopefully, you know, we won't kill each other by the end of August. So, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I promise on the next episode, we will actually discuss snooker, which is kind of what we're supposed to be doing. But thank you for listening. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.